Welcome to Farm and Fiddle, the radio program that celebrates and explores rural life for today and tomorrow. Wednesday nights at 6 p.m. on KOPN 89.5 FM and KOPN.org. And it's where the birds and the bees and the donkeys and the fiddles all come together. I'm your host, Margot McMillan, and we're all glad that you're here, too. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a presentation of Farm and Fiddle, and it was first broadcast on February 2nd, 2022 on KOPN 89.5 FM Community Radio in Columbia, Missouri, and KOPN.org on the World Wide Web. I'm Margot McMillan, and this interview is a chat with folks from the Catholic Charities of Central and Northern Missouri who are resettling Afghan refugees in mid-Missouri. You'll hear from Dan Lester, Executive Director of Catholic Charities of Central and Northern Missouri, Frishta Aslami, Afghan Program Coordinator, and Ashley Wiskirken, Director of Communications. Thanks for tuning in. I I was thinking... I would just start with you, Dan, and you could just give us an overview of what the Catholic Charities of Central and North Missouri, what you all do. Thanks for thanks for letting us come and talk about what we've been doing with um, refugee resettlement. So your question was kind of big picture Catholic Charities of Central and Northern Missouri and who we are and what we do. Mm-hmm. Um, we are Catholic Charities is the charitable social services arm of the Diocese of Jefferson City. So we're a a faith-based nonprofit. We are a a 501c3. So, you know, we follow all the legal guidelines that that come with that. Um, But we provide a variety of programs and services to try to help meet the needs of our vulnerable neighbors throughout the 38 counties of the Diocese of Jefferson City. And, um, you know, really what we're tasked with is, um, good morning, Frishta. Um, what we're tasked with is making sure that the church in this part of the world is following through with one of her key missions, which is making sure that those on the margins are being cared for and and taken care of. And so, um, like I said, we do that a lot of different ways, but I know specifically what we kind of want to talk about today is refugee resettlement. And then Mm -hmm. ultimately what we've been doing with um, all of our new neighbors from Afghanistan. And so, the the diocese of Jefferson City and now Catholic Charities have been welcoming refugees from all around the world for more than 45 years at this point. So really starting with um, the airlift of the Vietnamese at the end of the, the Vietnam War, Catholic dioceses all across the country really became much more heavily involved in doing refugee resettlement work. And so our diocese here in Jefferson City got involved at that time and started an office of refugee services and started working in our communities to help um, get 
refugees resettled here in mid-Missouri. So that means working directly with the federal government who um, oversee that program to, to make sure that it happens and runs effectively. And so in the last 47 years, I guess now, um, we've welcomed more than 5,000 refugees from different parts of the world to Columbia and Jefferson City and Sedalia and now Fulton. And, you know, it's shifted over time. It was a lot of refugees from Southeast Asia initially. And then it was at one point it was Bosnian refugees. And then it was refugees from the Middle East and the last few years, it's been a lot of refugees from um, the Congo, from the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And of course, now, really, since the, the end of August, it's been a whole bunch of um, folks from Afghanistan. And so I mentioned that refugee resettlement is a, a federal program. So it's federally funded. It's taxpayer dollars, my dollars and your dollars going in to, to do this work. Um, and it's pretty all encompassing. It is everything from initial housing and furniture and culturally appropriate food and just all those basic needs that, that folks have to um, the longer term services like English language learning and enrolling students in school and doing job placements and helping people um, transition into their, their new lives here in the United States. And the goal of refugee resettlement is always the greatest degree of independence for our new neighbors in a, a manner that we can help ha that we can make happen as quickly as possible. So we want it to be healthy. You know, we don't want to just push people away from services, but our goal is also to not have refugees be reliant on agencies like Catholic charities mm -hmm. for the entirety of the rest of their lives. We want to want to help them empower them and, and get them to a good place. And the last thing I'll say on, on this piece is, um, you know, I think your reaction, Margot, that we've been doing this for 40 plus years is really typical. We tell people that and they're like, what do you, wait, what do you mean you've been doing that here in mid-Missouri for 40 plus years? I've never, I didn't know that that was happening, that the church or Catholic charities was doing this resettlement work. And I'm really proud of that. And, and part of the reason for that, though, is um, refugees are incredibly strong, capable, resilient people. And, you know, Catholic Charities provides an avenue for them to be able to come here to our communities where then they do work and they do go to our schools and refugee kids just become our kids' classmates and refugee adults become the people we're standing shoulder to shoulder with at work. And they're sitting next to us at church and they're shopping in the store with us. And we don't even, you know, they, they just become our neighbors. And I think that's really a testament not to the work we do, but to our refugee community that and our and the broader community of Mid-Missouri, which has been so welcoming and allowed us to do this work for so long. So that's all I'll say for now. <laughs> well said. That you've said a mouthful. That's just great. Let me <laughs> be sure that I understand because um, I know that the title is Catholic Charities. Do the refugees need to be Catholic people? No. So that's a great question. That is probably the most frequently asked mm -hmm. question we get about all of our services at Catholic Charities of Central and Northern Missouri. And the answer is always um, absolutely not. We serve all people regardless of faith, background, circumstance. Um, and so, you know, whether it's refugees, whether it's folks coming to our food pantry, 
whether it's people seeking counseling services, people looking for assistance with housing, we are going to serve them regardless. We don't um, proselytize. We don't ask about those kind of things. Now, are we a faith-based organization? And and the reason we provide these services has, um, you know, we we're doing this with the knowledge, of course, of scripture, like Matthew chapter 25, whatsoever you did for the least of these, you did unto me. And when we talk about refugee resettlement work, you know, there's plenty of, um, plenty of information in the Old Testament, the New Testament that ties right into the reason why it's important to work with these folks. But we have an incredibly diverse population of folks that we work with. And our staff members are incredibly diverse. You don't even have to be Catholic to come work for Catholic charities or volunteer for Catholic charities or be involved with Catholic charities. Now at the leadership level, sure. Our executive director is probably always going to be Catholic. Um, you know, that's, that's just kind of a given. But I would stack my staff up as far as diversity goes with just about anybody in mid-Missouri. We have um, folks of all kinds of different Christian denominations, and we have Muslims, and we have atheists, and we have agnostics, and we have um, we have Jewish folks. Like it's incredibly broad and diverse, and we're all able to come together under that umbrella of caring for people who need care. You know, that's a universal message. The Catholic Church certainly doesn't have um, a monopoly on wanting to care for people who need help. Um, so I think we strike a good balance of we don't shy away from that aspect of what we do. And we work with our staff to help them understand here's some of the basis of why a Catholic agency would want to do this work. But at the same time, like I said, we're, we're never going to proselytize. Um, folks don't have to sit through a sermon to get services at Catholic charities. But when they walk in, is there probably going to be a crucifix on the wall? Yeah. Absolutely. Is there going to be a picture of our bishop on the wall? Certainly there, there is, but that's, we prefer those gentle reminders <laughs> of who we are and, and what we do versus trying to force um, anything on anybody. Mm -hmm. Okay. Thanks for, for explaining that. Um, how big is the staff that you have there? So our total staff is, I want to say, as of today, 52, 53. Um, we've been hiring a lot of different folks, especially over the course of the last year. Not all of those are dedicated to our refugee services program. Like I said, we also have staff who are dedicated to health and nutrition programming. So we have a food pantry and we do a number of different health-related programs for older adults. We are developing some counseling services. So we have some behavioral health professionals on our team. Um, you know, we've got kind of a variety of different folks who are working in different programs, but mm -hmm. our refugee services is certainly our largest program. Yeah. It's our oldest program. And so that team at this point is first of probably can't keep tabs of all the new hires either, but I think there's probably uh, 23 or 24 folks who are working in that, our refugee services team at this time. Wow. That's a, that's a mighty, a mighty group of people. <laughs> looking out to help help um well frista let's turn to you and i you are frista islami and afghan program coordinator you know there was something i wanted to ask and i should have asked at the very beginning um i hear afghan and i hear afghani and i wonder 
which is, or maybe they're both wrong. What, <laughs> what's the correct way of um, the, I would like the adjective and the noun. Okay. Uh, it's so nice meeting you. Um, yes, I, I'm Fresh Aslami. Uh, actually, uh, when you go to, when you say Afghani, it refers to the money that we currently that we use. Okay. So for the people you call Afghan and Afghans. <gasps> Thank <Yeah>. you. Okay. <laughs> yeah. At the at the very beginning, when I start uh, working, uh, I was one. Of, I was the first hire for the uh, Afghan program, and. Uh, they were talking and then I said, just as I can, we have like a culture orientation for staff and then we can have for our volunteers. I was like, the first thing, don't say Afghani because they think you're talking about money and they will come after you. So I had that joke. So whenever we, we talk about someone and say, we say, remember to say Afghans, not Afghani because they think you have a lot of money. Okay. That's, yeah. that's if we get nothing else, you know, figured out today. But, yeah. But you if we say, I have, yes, we have a lot of Afghanis in Colombia. So they would say, you have a lot of money. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thank you so much for that clarification. Are you Afghan yourself? Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm Afghan. Uh -huh. uh, I moved, uh, I came to the United States in 2009 uh, as a student. I went to Westminster College. I did my undergrad. And uh, before I came to Westminster, I was in Costa Rica for two years. Uh, I got a scholarship for high school. And the same program offered me another scholarship for undergrad. And that's how I ended up staying in Missouri. I still live in Fulton and then I moved to Columbia. So I've been in Columbia for a while. Um, yeah. Oh, that's so, you know, this is way aside. We, and you know, the beauty of pre-recording like this is we can cut things. So <laughs> I will, I will say a cuttable piece. Um, I taught at Westminster for 25 years and love, love the college. So I'm glad to get that connection, to hear that connection also. Uh, well, maybe you could tell us, Frishta, um, when you find, well, let's see, where should we start? Well, I, one, one question I would like to know is how many families are coming in uh, um, Ashley said you just are just finishing up the first wave. How many in that wave and how many do you expect in total and uh, where are they going? Uh, so when I started, um, I think the number we estimated was 300 people. So because the family could be family of two, family of three, mm -hmm. family of 13. We do have a family of 13. That is our large number. We have family of nine. And then they had, they gave birth another baby to make a family of 10. So we do have, uh, we go by the numbers uh, because kind of it's hard to say like how many family there are. Uh, and we, uh, so far we had our last um, arrival last week, uh, mm -hmm. but that was like the number estimated, but we do have another list that we get requests from our clients that, oh, my brother is still, or my cousin or my friend that I, I met someone there, they would like them to come because they are very happy with the service. We serve them the way we care for them, the way we have provided them the service. And that makes them to ask us like, hey, I have a friend. I would really like them to come to Colombia. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, yes. Okay. So um, these 300 people, where are they before they come into mid-Missouri? Okay. 
they are in different bases. They are in uh, Virginia or Wisconsin. Uh, so they come from different bases. Mm -hmm. And then um, some of them uh, that my clients that I have talked, they were for a little while, they were in Germany or of course like Qatar and then come to US. And uh, and then they come, uh, we have in Mid-Missouri, which Columbia, we have families in Jefferson City. We do have uh, families in Fulton. So these are the three cities so far that we have Afghans resettled. But well, mainly that... in Columbia. Go ahead, yeah. Yes. So I wanted to ask you, how do you decide where a family will go? So um, uh, we do, uh, and also we have another program, which is community sponsorship. Mm -hmm. So which uh, started from Fulton. Our first community sponsorship was from Fulton Rotary Club. And they really wanted to have families there. So that is how we start engaging. And then from uh, Fulton, and then we have another community sponsorship in Columbia that uh, two of my cases are with them. It is absolutely an amazing way to connect it with the community and uh, the way they serve them. And it, it is, it's just so beautiful. And, uh, and also then we get to have community sponsorship in Jefferson City. And that's how it is spread out. Like uh, they wanted to, to place them in different uh, cities like Jefferson City or Bolton. And uh, yeah, we are working with more communities uh, sponsorship that to see because this community sponsorship, they have families and we do also have single guys, single girls. And there are some community sponsorship they would like to have another, like creating another community sponsorship to have the single cases, mm -hmm. like kind of like to have a relationship to to connect with people or easily with the society or community. Okay, so a sponsorship, and I I bet you Bob Hansen has something to do with the Fulton sponsorship, doesn't he? Absolutely, yes, <laughs> yes, yes, he he has. He's yeah, when you said Rotary Club and and uh, Fulton, I thought, well, that's got to be, it's got to be Bob. Um, so, what what are these sponsors? What do they do? What is their role? So, um, Richard, can I speak to the community sponsorship piece oh, just briefly? Absolutely. Okay, yeah. okay I've and heard that's Martha present on this so many times now that I feel like I have a good grip on Thank how you. that works. Yeah, so community sponsors come forward with resources and people that allow us to um, task some of those resettlement efforts to the community sponsor. And the twin goals there, we can help build the capacity of our agency because they're taking on some of those resettlement tasks, okay. but also their community connections help the refugees to settle in those areas well and become very oriented to the community resources even things like neighborhood familiar familiarity, um, grocery store familiarity. A lot of the community sponsors that come forward as a group have individuals um, within them that have special connections to maybe the school district or English language learning experience. And so they can take on specific tasks and help that family settle well by connecting them directly to those services or taking on, you know, I will take care of organizing transportation to and from medical appointments, or I will take care of helping the family enroll their children um, with the local school system. Um, so those community sponsorships are really valuable to our agency because it helps us to, right, put some of those tasks within the community, but it's also really beneficial to the sponsors and the family because they start building friendships and relationships and personal connections in that community. And that also like Frishta very well 
you know, you said that very well, Frishta. That is also what drives the locations for some of those families settling, right? And I've heard that there's a strong desire for families to remain close to each other and community sponsorships have allowed us to do that as well. So instead of one family living in Fulton and uh, their family member living also in Columbia, they can resettle both of those families near each other because the community sponsorship availability allows them to serve those families with many hands. Um, does that help give some context to that program? Absolutely. Um, it's a, just the, the way you're talking about it, it's sounding like a bigger and bigger project to me. Um, how, how do you, do, do the community sponsors find the housing and get the kids enrolled in school? And is that? So community sponsors are onboarded to our agency and oriented, um, trained to do and take on a lot of those tasks, but truly then they take ownership of that. And yes, they, I spoke with one community sponsor who's part of the sponsorship group here in Jefferson city. And she was working directly with the family on the paperwork and steps to getting the kids enrolled in school. And she had been a teacher within the school system and that had also helped administratively with the school system. So she just understood the pathway to get that accomplished quickly, um, as quickly as we can, right? Because we have our own systems that we work with for resettlement, and then we work with the school system. They have many requirements. And so I think sometimes we encounter um, just how challenging, I mean, it's challenging for families who live here and have lived here for years to navigate some of those systems. When you're coming from another country, from a traumatic experience with language barriers and cultural differences, um, these community sponsors have really stepped up their game to be welcoming, to help navigate some of the confusion and to accomplish, you know, school enrollment, I think is a, is a huge accomplishment <laughs> for um, these families. And it's been exciting to see that unfold in Colombia. I know we've been able to share a couple of those stories. Um, yeah, so the community sponsors really do take ownership of those tasks and help make them possible. Now, they work very closely with the case managers um, to make sure that the family's needs are all met. We have some requirements set up for community sponsors that empower them with language, translation, all, all of these little hurdles that our agency navigates, we navigate alongside the community sponsors. Uh-huh. Well, uh, let's talk about how they come into the community, if they're coming from, let's say, Virginia, um, have they gotten some orientation in English and schools and, and how those things work? Um, you know, it's it's fairly minimal. And so mm -hmm. just some, some context, um, you know, the typical refugee resettlement process, and refugees are a very specific legally defined group of migrants or immigrants. These are folks who've been forced to flee from their home country due to persecution or a well-founded fear of persecution. They've crossed an international border. And there's typically a long um, process of identifying refugees in different large cities around the world or in refugee camps where they oftentimes end up. And that usually starts with the United Nations and the United Nations is working with world governments all around the world to figure out where refugees can be resettled. But in the case, especially of the um, Afghanistan evacuees, that was 100,000 people airlifted out of the country in a matter of weeks. And so um, 
you know, we, we Catholic Charities, our refugee resettlement program, the most refugees we've ever welcomed to mid-Missouri in a 12-month period in the 45 years of doing this was 229. Well, in the, since September 26th, we've had 289 Afghan neighbors join us. And so we've managed to cram uh, more than a year plus worth of work into just one four-month period. So because of how quickly all of this happened and took place, really most of the focus when the evacuees were taken to these different bases or the, the lily pad is sort of the term that um, the government likes to refer to them as. A lot of what was happening there, there may have been some cultural orientation happening, but it was primarily focused on making sure folks had various vaccinations and safe, you know, um, background screenings and security checks and other medical screenings and just more of a focus on how do we make sure people are as, as healthy as they possibly can be before we have them resettled into these different communities. So they haven't had a whole lot necessarily of cultural orientation before they come to Columbia or Jefferson City or Fulton, but that's really where our staff and our volunteers and our community sponsors start coming into play is, you know, it does go beyond just here's an apartment or a house and here's bed and here's food. It really becomes much more, okay, let's talk about how to navigate the roads in the United States or going through a Walmart for the first time. And like Ashley and Frishta said, enrolling kids in school, you know, all of that is, that's really where we're now starting to shift our focus is we've got them here. People are safe. They're secure. Now we start helping them with all those those longer term tasks that make the adjustment more successful. And it's also, it's just really quickly, it's important to note too that it's a continuum of folks that we work with. And this is true of our Afghan refugees. It's true of all the refugees we work with. Um, some folks are coming from living very rural, remote lives, whether that was in Afghanistan or in the Congo or wherever it might be. And you know, formal schooling, like we think of it in the United States, or formal language skills. There are some folks, refugees we've welcomed who um, don't read their own native languages. Mm -hmm. But on that spectrum, there are also folks who were doctors and lawyers and interpreters and architects and may speak and write and read better English than most of us do. And, you know, they also their transition is going to look different than these folks over here. And the truth is it's probably more of a bell curve. More people are, most people are somewhere in the middle of those two. Um, but you know, that's, that's one of the challenges for us is resettlement looks different for every refugee. It's not a one size fits all. There are certainly certain requirements that we have to meet as a mandate of our funding from the government for every single family. And that makes sense. But we also know that there are going to be some, we already have some, some Afghan families who um, people are working, kids are in school, and we're starting to actually close the case as far as our sort of intensive work with them. It doesn't mean we're not here to support them. We're always going to be there to support them. But they're, they're, they're launched, you know, they're making their transitions already and they're being successful. And there are some folks, again, on the other side who are coming with 
some pretty intense trauma and physical challenges. And that, that transition for them is going to be longer term and more intensive. And so that's where Frishta and her team are going to be continuing to work more closely with them over a longer period of time. Yeah. Well, can you tell us a story of one family or, you know, one person that um, kind of sticks out in your mind as a good example of what people might, might not know? Everybody's muted. So, oh, there's Frista. <laughs> so uh, are you asking from like uh, being in a short period of time, this seems to be self-sufficient? Are you talking from that perspective? That's, uh, you know, I'm just thinking about what, a f you know, if, if there's a sort of an example of a family that has um, made their way through the system and for one reason or another, ended up in mid-Missouri. And maybe we should talk a little bit about why, you know, why would someone end up in mid-Missouri instead of Madison, Wisconsin, or, you know, New York City or something? How, how are that, how is that decision? Maybe we should start with that, that question. Who makes uh, that decision? Do they, or do you, or who, who? Um, I, I would say for, for, for most court, uh, a lot of uh, clients, they do have families other states. So um, uh, I have stories like some of them, they have choose to go to a different state, for example, California, mm -hmm. but it is so hard to get there because they literally like resettlement agency, they don't have more space. So, and then uh, for some of them, they choose and some of them, it has been said like, okay, you're going to this resettlement. Uh, at the very beginning, so we, ha we have this, um, system where we see the list like our clients and then we picked we are getting these families and then we would request mm -hmm. these are the cases that we are gonna get so that is how ours was from our side uh, but when it comes to um, our clients here in community um, talking from my own perspective of my clients majority of my clients are already like on their way to become more self-sufficient mm -hmm. um, um, like from terms of like finding their way to Walmart, finding their way to even if Walmart is far to go to a gas station or a finding the library or going to the mosque because uh, Colombia is a, a good mid size and it has walking distance. And also like we teach them when we provide them the phone, of course, like this is GPs, how to use it. And there were sometimes clients that they would send me location, hey, I'm in this location. Uh, like kind of I'm lost, would you mind to send me an Uber? So that is really like, it's really right, right in my heart when I see that, how quick they get, you know, our first arrival was uh, a, a, a young uh, adult, like a young guy. And uh, so many times I saw him all around Colombia. Like he literally even find a trail. He found where the schools are. Like anytime I would see his phone was in his hand, you know, walking on the road. And it's like, I was like, this is so amazing. You come to a community where you don't know, not knowing the language, not even having anyone because you're the first arrival, uh, not having clue like how many, like, are there any other Afghans living in Colombia? And he, how quickly he navigate and get to know where things are. And then he teach others. Um, so we do have families, like um, even they went to 
uh, open bank accounts. I have my clients that I have majority of them, one of them find a way and then help another one. So th this is really, really like amazing that how fast they are getting, they're adopting the community and the environment and how to have access. We do also provide them a bus transportation. So like, you know, where to get the bus, because which bus go, which uh, which area of town. So they're familiar with that. Um, yeah, things like that. Yeah, that is that is amazing. Have they been able to find jobs? Yes, yes. Uh, um, within uh, our system, is so what, uh, we do the employment assessment mm -hmm. and do our employment specialist. Uh, once they do the assessment where they have a uh, work experience, where each area they can work. And then they go through there. So um, a lot of our clients, they do have their job. They have to start their first job. And all of them, they're so eager to start working. The first thing they come say, hey, I want to start working. I want to start working. I want to go to school. I want to start working. I want to go to school. That is the first thing they talk about. Absolutely. When can I go to work? When can I start going to school? So they, and, and that shows like how much they want to be independent, how much they want to develop, how much they want to achieve like you know to to show that like you know even if you're new but we are willing to learn we are willing to adopt this community yes that's great that's great to hear and schools how are schools negotiating or how are they negotiating schools how is that working out to get the kids in so when it comes to the kids like to get the kids and our staff that uh, works with schools so they do enroll schools and they, they do first with their uh, test. And after that, because not all the kids know language when they come. So uh, we do have uh, English classes in Afghanistan. It is like one of the requirement, but if all your classes are in your native language, so you mostly focus on that because I, do, I did have an English class when I was back in Afghanistan. But like you just do it as a one of the requirement, but really your all focus is all your other class or in, in your native language. So when they do the testing for them, uh, and also based on the age, they place them on classes. So, but I do believe by the end of next like fall when they start, there will there might be some changes when they see how how well they're doing doing in the school. There might be place them to a different grade. Uh, but right now, yeah, they, they have been enrolled in school and they just, uh, the system is the, obviously a lot different mm -hmm. um, when they go, because back in Afghanistan, there's so much assignments. Like it has started from grade four, like so much assignments. But in here, this, like you only have like, um, like six classes or five. But in Afghanistan, you're in grade six, you already have 12, 13 subjects that you have. So it's oh. a huge change. There's like, Hey, we don't have assignment, <laughs> like you know, and and I have been explaining to them, like you know, the system is different, but you will get there, like you know, when you go to high school, so you will have different. Then you have to get prepared to do SAT, you have to do um, apply for a scholarship, like you know, and also the system of credit here, like you know, it is GPA. In, back in Afghanistan, it's not GPA. It is like the higher your grades are, you're the first person your name is gonna be in the list in your class. Mm -hmm. In here, the classes, the kids go to different classroom, but in Afghanistan, from the very beginning till the end, you have your end with the same classroom. It's just the teacher changes. So mm -hmm. it is kind of different for them. In a way, it is fun. And that way also is like, we don't have homeworks. So <laughs> I, I, when I visit some, some of my clients, uh, I do sometimes when I get a chance, I just go drop by or 
either to get a signature or if it is a weekend, I had like a four days weekend. I was like, let me just go stop by. And then I did have like really amazing conversation with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and they were talking about their experience. Like, of course, they have their concerns and also they have their like, you know, how grateful they are, like what they have learned. Uh, but when it comes to school, so it, it has been very interesting for the kids, mm-hmm. but but they do enjoy it. Yeah, uh, we had I have another um, one of my colleague here, uh, one of her kids, the kids has been, I believe it, is, it has been almost a month and the kids are like, so uh, it, it hasn't been a month yet, but they are so wanted to go to school. Mm-hmm. And anytime I heard like, hey, when are we going to school? Because Aww. the school system also taking a little time because you have to do, even though they come, their uh, vaccine has been done, but school has their system that they want to go through again. Mm-hmm. So it is taking and also like the capacity with the schools, uh, because it is a huge amount of people just come up and city like, you know, the school need to figure out that too. So it's kind of like um, we were working together on that, mm-hmm. but the kids are like really with the family when they come adults they want to go to start working the kids want to go to school and uh you know the age 18 above they was like i want to go to like college i want to do my college or i do have clients that they want to join military so bad they always like wow. hey have you figured out i want to, i want to join that is something i really want i have a client that i've been trying to find a way to see if there's possibility for him to join to military it's like that is my dream to be in the military so yeah hmm. Interesting. Well, you know, that brings up the question of citizenship. Is there a group working toward helping helping people get citizenship? Yes. So we actually have a family immigration team here mm-hmm. at Catholic Charities that's made up of a number of staff who are accredited by the Department of Justice to be able to do legal immigration work with folks at really affordable fees that um, where much it's much more realistic than going to a full immigration lawyer um Mm -hmm. so we have our family immigration team who's working on that now part of the challenge with um afghan evacuees and refugees and parolees there's all these different terms um that are floating around out there and that's partly due to the fact that the status of many of these folks is still um there are and this is a federal level Um, policy that needs to be worked out in in the long run, but um, trying to determine exactly what the long-term status is going to be and how we get these some of these folks on a path to permanent residency and permanent citizenship is still being um, hammered out in Congress right now. So a lot of the a lot of the Afghans worked directly with the U.S. military or U.S. contractors or the U.S. government in Afghanistan. And so for those folks, they can be granted what's known as special immigrant visas. And those are are great from our perspective because a special immigrant visa basically is giving someone that path to long-term citizenship. That's something that the, the U.S. government has done for many, many years for people from all over the world who had some sort of a direct connection to our government in foreign countries. And so that's a that's a very good process that is efficient and effective and, and works well. Unfortunately, there is a, a, a subset of the Afghan evacuees who may not have had that same direct connection to the U.S. government. And so kind of where they're at right now is that in the long term, what they're going to have to do is file for um, asylum status. And 
that is a path that can eventually get someone to permanent residency, but it's very backlogged at the federal level. It also is similar to what someone who presented at the southern border would have to go through in order to gain acceptance and permanent residency. And so if you follow that news at all, there's just a backlog in asylum cases in the federal court system that many of us who are advocating for especially our Afghan population would say that's not going to be efficient or effective for them. Like there has to be there has to be a better way to make this happen. So I know right now federally they're work they're looking at ways to either shift status for many of these Afghans or they're looking at ways to expedite some processes because the background checks have been completed and you know we we feel good about who we've welcomed and and what that how that's going to look long term um, but it is still one of those pressing questions that unfortunately we can do some advocacy and we can follow these debates and we can inform our supporters of who they can contact at the federal level to um, you know um, advocate for change in policy but it's one of those things that we have so little control over that I know that is really challenging for myself and for my team that you know we can make sure people have food and we can make sure that they're making social connections and we don't what we don't want to end up with is a situation where, two, three, four, five years down the line, as people have built their lives here and they're working and their children are in school and they're successful. And then it comes back that, oh, well, you don't get to stay. And I don't, I don't think it will come to that. But if some things don't happen, then that's a concern. And that's, it's not an immediate concern, but it's, it is something that I would love if, if listeners are wanting to know more about that please let us know and we can let them know how to engage with their decision makers to make sure that this is happening. And just to get on, on my soapbox for two seconds, that there's a broader need for immigration reform across the U.S. in all sorts of different areas, whether that's um, our new Afghan neighbors or people presenting at the southern border, that it, there's a, a need for that to shift. And we're hopeful that 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 will shift long-term. Once again, well said. I, I appreciate I so appreciate so much what you're saying and um, the thoughtfulness that it obviously is going into it. Um, I, I'd like to know if there are ways people can, can learn more, ways that they can get a hold of you, perhaps if they want to volunteer. Certainly. We have a robust uh, web presence <laughs> through okay. our through our website and through our social media channels where um, people can absolutely learn more. Our website has a wealth of information on how to get involved with our Afghan response efforts, whether that's through donating critical supplies, donating um, monetary resources, volunteering, becoming engaged in community sponsorship groups. So Right from our homepage, there's a link to the landing page for our Afghan efforts, and um, it's very easy to sign up. We've worked really hard, especially the last few months, in streamlining and, and improving our volunteer processes. So volunteer opportunities are clearly listed on the website. It's a simple click for people to, to see 
what's available and what shifts are needed and what tasks people will be performing and, and how to sign up and how to get screened through our background check process. It's really, um, we've tried to make it as straightforward and, and easy as we possibly can, while also acknowledging the need to have committed volunteers who recognize these are vulnerable people that we serve. And so we want to make sure that the people that we bring on board to assist us with this are also going to be a good fit and are going to be appropriate to be working with the people that we serve. So that would be what I would always encourage folks is um, we're trying to drive them to that website because that's where we can house so much of that information and make it easy for people to navigate. Fabulous. Well, uh, I feel like I'm out of questions, but I did want to say um, I have some friends who had an Afghan family move in close to them and they are getting along well. And I think they're really enjoying the experience. Um, if you have a family that moves in close to you, uh, can you give us a little tip on how to reach out to people or are people just sensitized that Americans are going to do that? How would somebody proceed to make friends with an Afghan person? Maybe a few words of, um, you know, how, how do you say hello? I, I will let Frishta answer that, but I will just say um, as a precursor to her answer, if um, you want to meet a family and engage with them, that's wonderful. And be prepared that that is not going to be a quick interaction like, or, or it may not be a quick interaction like what we're used to in our American culture. You're most likely going to be invited in for tea and they are going to want to spend time with you and really have that engagement with you. That's one of the things that I've heard as I've talked to so many and I've experienced in meeting some of our families and in talking to the community sponsors and our volunteers who are working with these families is um, it's, there's never just a quick drop off and, and say hi and then go. Um, it's always come in, come in, please food and tea and just that communal <laughs> nature. Um, you know, it may not hold for everyone. Um, and I don't want to make just generalizations, but it is very, very common. So I think that's a, it's a wonderful wonderful thing we just um it's a it's been fascinating to have people have that experience that sounds like it will be fortifying for our our culture so frishta how would we say hello and how are you maybe just a couple of phrases that you think are important okay um for for saying hi uh, we do say salam how do you say, say it again salam S-A- L-A-A-M. S-A-L-A-A-A-M. Salam. Yes, correct. Okay. You said it well, yes. <laughs> Good. <laughs> okay. And, uh, mm -hmm. uh, if you ask, uh, how are you? Uh, you're saying, Shomor Chitaur has it. Ooh, that's more. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Krista, I, um, I also am so intrigued by your answers, but I did see through one of the cultural orientation pieces of our volunteer orientation, um, just waving and smiling. And also, um, are there some kind of more general ways that we can help our new neighbors feel comfortable? One thing that struck me particularly was eye contact, that we're very used to making eye contact. So maybe you could talk oh, just a little bit about those three things. Yeah. 
Uh, so one of the way, like when you greet someone, and especially if you are a male, you see if you see your neighbor, you put your hands on your chest, like kind of like not bow, okay. but just kind of like saying like hi, like you know, you raise your hand, but you hand your hands on your chest to say, and especially if it is a female. Uh, when it comes to like interacting, you don't like if you're a male, you don't directly look at a female's like in their face. So you always like your eyes are like lower, like when you talk, like first when you say hi, you you look at them. But then when you talk, like you try to look, you don't want to make them uncomfortable to straight look at their eyes or look at their face. And at least like, you know, it is two females or two males that they're talking and hugging is a common thing for women. And kissing on the cheeks, that's a very common, like when you see, uh, it has happened with me, some, some of my clients, like when, when I, when I go and they hug me, like, it's kind of like, if you don't do much, but at least like, you know, the side of your cheeks, like you do that, mm-hmm. uh, for guys is, um, they do handshake. And if you're a male, uh, you don't handshake with a female, only the female bring her hand first. So you don't, yes, that's something like. They always wait if the female want to handshake or no. If not, that's why they put their hands on their chest, like to say like hi. Yeah. Okay. Um, yes. Thank you, Krishna. And I'm in I'm inferring a little bit here, but just yes. again, is it always like very appropriate for us to to greet yes. that way? Yes. Okay. Yes. It, it, even even sometimes like uh, the the females like I have seen it. Uh, the ones that we kind of give a lot of culture orientation when they see our male clients. Uh, they, they do that too like they put their hands they say like hi like so to make them like you know oh I don't want like it to just give them that comfort yeah that's beautiful okay you know this is a really off the subject we won't p- probably put this on the air but um, whenever I see people doing the kiss on each cheek it looks like they know which cheek to start with and <laughs> is it you start with the right cheek or with the left cheek if you're going to um, I think you can kind of start first with the with the with the right cheeks. You just put your right cheeks on their right cheeks, yeah. Okay. And also with the guys, sometimes like if sometimes they hug, or sometimes like you hold their hands and you kind of tap your shoulder to their shoulder, like and put your hands on their back. So that kind of like hi, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, we won't be doing that with our you know COVID epidemic right now, but. Um... <laughs> but and, good and, to and know. Stop doing that and back home too because of COVID. So, yeah. like, yeah, they have stopped doing it. Yeah, we're gonna hope that uh, this summer people can hug each other again. Well, thank you all so much. I really appreciate all the time that you've taken. And uh, I'll just mention. I know Ashley has my email address, and the other you other two might also. If you think of things, you know, and you want them added, I because there'll be time for me to talk in between, you know, uh, sections. So um, I can always add stuff. And and if there's something that you realize, oh, I wish we hadn't said that. I don't think there is anything like that. But if there is, you can uh, ask me, I probably will do the um, cutting and, you know, putting everything together. Usually I do that on Sunday afternoon. So uh, Thank you, Margo. I did want to take the opportunity just to clarify that the name of the agency is Catholic Charities of Central and Northern Missouri, and the name of the resettlement office is Catholic Charities Refugee Services, Um, and that's the office that Frishta works for. You did ask me for our correct spellings and um, titles, so I know you have that um, there. And then do you have a way for us to listen um, online? Do you stream your radio program as well? 
We do. And it will air at 6 p.m. Uh, Central Time on Wednesday. Okay. And um, you can get it, you know, through the air <laughs> at 89.5 FM. Okay. And then it also streams on the web at kopn.org. And it's uh, archived for two weeks at kopn.org. And then, um, well, I'll just ask you if it's okay to make a podcast of this, because I do have a podcast page and I'm way behind on it. You know, I'm, I was talking to someone yesterday about, oh, you should make a podcast, you know, and, and I'm always thinking of the next show. I'm never thinking of the show that we just finished. <laughs> so, but I have made a commitment to myself to get caught up on that and, you know, next week. Yeah, that would be wonderful. And if you um, can send me the link to that after you mm-hmm. get that cut as well, we would be happy to refer to it on our website and and just great. drive some traffic there. Great. Well, and you guys have done a great job. And I think, you know, you could, I, I could see a, someone who might be thinking of their church being a community sponsor, you know, being, a, being able to get a lot. One of my dear friends is in the Presbyterian Church in Columbia, and there um, she's one of the community, uh, whatever she's called, um, but part of the community sponsorship greeting committee. And she's just been like, I don't know what we're, you know, so I'm definitely as soon as we get this, you know, in a good shape, I'm telling Sally, OK, you've got to tune in this week <laughs> so that she oh. can. And and tell Sally that we're still figuring all this out as we go to, even though we've done this work for a long time, this, uh, just this sheer amount and volume of people and how to do this effectively has led to um, really wonderful work. But we also know we've, we're still trying to get all of our, our ducks are pretty much in a row, but sometimes you got to get them back in a row because they tend to wander off and be ducks. So, um, <laughs> But I just, I wanted to, to chime in really quick before we go. Um, it always makes me nervous because I'm afraid I'm going to leave someone out. But mm-hmm. I certainly always try to just, um, I would be remiss if I didn't say that we know this is a community-wide effort. And we've been so fortunate to have so many different supporters. And so the University of Missouri, um, President Choi, and specifically Dr. Mary Stegmeyer in international programs, have been incredible partners from the very beginning of this process. And everybody at um, Residential Life, they've the university has graciously allowed us to use some unoccupied housing as short-term housing for some of our um, families. And so we still have some families who are in some university housing right now as we transition them to more long-term housing. The university has also provided dorm room space for two teams of AmeriCorps members who have come and served with us during this time. And that's just been that housing for those families and the ability to host the AmeriCorps has, we don't know what we would have done without that. So the the university has been fabulous from the start. And then just other community partners like Compass Health and the Voluntary Action Center and City of Refuge and all the different nonprofits in the community who have also stepped in to provide additional services and support. You know, this is, we are certainly the point agency for this effort, but we for many, many years have always known that we don't do this alone. And so Mm -hmm. there are a lot of great partners out there. And like I've said, I'm sure 
I didn't mention someone <laughs> that I probably should have, but I also always just try to make a point of that, that we're so grateful to have so many people supporting this work and making it a reality. Also, I would like to add something that uh, actually uh, the upcoming weekends, we do even have a program, a baby shower for our for the mothers that they give birth here in the U.S., either in the bases or here in Colombia. And um, uh, so it is it, it's we are looking forward to it. And that's also like we uh, there would be doctors from University Hospital uh, in also Mizzou to to just give like you know kind of like an overview of how we work and also with or give that comfort for the mothers and uh, uh, that's another thing we are doing and also we had doctors that directly themselves go to check clients in their house mm -hmm. so I, I had like Dr. Chris William, uh, Wilhelm uh, there were times that he literally went to our client's house to check a patient a child mm -hmm. because there was like you know it was a weekend or um mm -hmm there was like no time to sketch what it was just that came up. So he went or even dropped medicine. So that is like really, really amazing to know how much support we get from our community. And um, and and this, it means the world to us, to be honest, for, for our agency and resettlement, yeah. That is great. You know, I have another friend who uh, is a neighbor to um, an Afghan family in uh, Colombia. And I think it might be the one that has the 13 children or there's a lot of kids. Um, and he asked for toys. And so I brought, I took him a box of, you know, grandchild toys. And um, then I felt a little, oh, maybe I shouldn't have done this. Maybe, maybe there's a procedure to, uh, is there, is there, is there a way for people to donate stuff like, you know, stuff, toys and clothes and such. Should they donate to a family or should they, if they know one or should they, is there a central clearing house that they should go through? Uh, <laughs> We're both, um, <laughs> I'll, Krista, I'll let you give an answer and then I will chime in if I okay. think of anything else. <laughs> uh, we, we, we do have, they, they directly go to clients because how community has been like our volunteers, like Ashley said, we have to make sure they are fully on board before they have, they are in direct contact with our clients. We do have our, our volunteers that they are connected to someone else who has clothing and then they either give us the address for the agency, like I have this clothing, they either bring it to us or they give it to volunteers because a lot of our volunteers are in such a direct contact with our clients that they say, oh, I know which family needs what, or the kids need shoes or the kids need toys. And then the volunteer directly delivers to the family or they straight bring it to our office. Okay. So I'm yeah. still not sure it would be better for them to bring it to your office or is there an office in Columbia? So there is an office in Columbia, and okay. I know that they just now too put up a great sign if someone's not available to answer the door because they have constant, you know, appointments and are kind of out in the community a lot of times. So sometimes scheduling ahead for a drop off of items is really helpful. Okay. And if you just happen to go by there and and for some reason can't get attention, there are numbers up there so that we can always make sure we intercept that. But I think too there's something to be said, and Dan, you can correct this if it's off base that. As these um, families become part of the community, 
um, our agency will have less and less facilitating of those, you know, genuine relationships forming. So if you have things that you want to donate, like, please do touch base with our office and see what those needs are. But if you have a neighbor two doors down that asked for some toys or said hi and mentioned that their kids love, you know, stuffed animals or something. Um, I don't think that our agency is kind of the middle person between those genuine, genuine relationships, right? That's what we want for them is to start to know their neighbors and borrow a cup of sugar, right? Like that's, that's the goal. So maybe that's kind of the middle ground, but for your answer, (laughs) but that's definitely what we hope for these new neighbors. Yeah. I think as people, now that they're in neighborhoods and they have neighbors on both sides or across the street like that we are hopeful that people will introduce themselves and begin to form those relationships so you know the the place where we would always be safe is if someone were to call us just out of the blue and say i want to take toys to someone's house can you tell me an, an address of one of these people and where I could, or one of these families, and then I will take the toys there. We would say, well, no, (laughs) we can't do that. Mm -hmm. Let's walk you through our volunteer onboarding process and get a background check. But we also, there's just, there's a function also though of us just letting go. I mean, once people are in their neighborhoods, you know, we, we can't, we're not, we're not going to screen everybody who lives around (laughs) someone that's Mm -hmm. just not realistic. So um, yeah, I think there's there's certainly different routes to be able to to do this. And as those community connections expand, then that is the network that we're going to have folks relying on. Part of the challenge for us just with donations is um, it's not that we don't want them, but we also you we get flooded <laughs> sometimes oh. with so many items. Um, and it's wonderful to have that support, but sometimes you just run out of room to house them or time to inventory them and just everything that goes with it, which is part of why um, our staff have created a really effective critical needs list that lives Mm -hmm. on our website that gets updated regularly. Okay, Um, That is something that, again, from that site, people can pull that and see, oh, I want to make a donation of food, but what would be culturally appropriate or what would be most desired? Well, that list has exactly what those items are. So people aren't just randomly bringing things or I really, you know, I want to make a donation of, of something besides food. Well, here are the things that we really need. We really could use diapers versus clothes at this point or whatever Mm -hmm. that, that might be. And so um, that it's always good to, again, keep pointing people towards those the resources that we really, really, really need. We've also made it easy. We have an Amazon wish list, like so many different nonprofits do now, where folks can go to that wish list, um, which is also linked to through our site, and they can purchase items from Amazon to be sent directly to the agency, and we can then distribute them from there. So again, donations are so critical to what we do but the more that we can tailor those donations to the exact needs of our families, the more effective that is in the long term for our families and for our, our community in general. Okay. Well, I didn't mean to ask that question, but I'm glad I did. You, you've given us a lot of information and I think it does need to go out to the public. So thank you all so, so much. And uh, we'll, we'll check back again.
Yes. Thank you, Margo. We appreciate it. Well, and, and yes, please. Anytime we would love to revisit in yeah. six months and talk about some of the different um, successes that we've seen and what those yeah. challenges might be and be able to continue to, to share the work. I would love to do that. Okay. Thank you much. Take care. Hope everybody has a great day, a great weekend, whatever else is ahead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You Thanks, too. everybody. Thank Frishta and Ashley, thank you. Yeah. You're welcome. Thank you. You guys did a great job. Okay. <laughs>this podcast is a rebroadcast of farm and fiddle broadcast on community radio station kopn 89.5 fm in columbia missouri and kopn.org on the world wide web i'm margo mcmillan and the interview you just heard was with folks from the catholic charities of central and northern missouri dan lester is executive director Frishta Aslami is the Afghan Program Coordinator, and Ashley Wiskirken is Director of Communications. The music in the background is Beaumont Rag, played by Nettie Van on her Toonsville CD.